Welcome to The Open Word, the online teaching ministry of Pastor David Landry on today's episode. Open our hearts, change us from within by the open word. Give us ears to hear your truth and eyes to see the needs around us as we draw. the authority of God's Word and by the experience of a multitude of hundreds of thousands, if not millions. God is faithful. If you're going through a time, you're in the midst of a crisis of faith. Let me encourage you, God is faithful. Even in the worst of our situations, even in the greatest trials that we might have, our God is faithful. And we need to continue to look to Him. We need to continue to draw for Him. As a Christian, you have a hope that far exceeds anything you can find in the world. However, you're not guaranteed a life with no trials or hard times. Today, Pastor David takes you to Acts to show you that no matter what kind of situation you find yourself in, and no matter how bleak things might look, God is faithful and will comfort you if you seek Him. It's important that you do not let doubt sneak its way into your heart, because when you do, you'll lose sight of God and the hope and guidance He provides. And here's Pastor David in the book of Acts chapter 25 as he begins his message, The Crisis of Non-Faith. You know, sometimes when we go through situations in life as believers, I don't care if you've been a believer for uh, three months or 30 years or more, sometimes we go through stuff that really pushes us to the edge, pushes us to the edge of our faith, our hope, our expectation that, yes, God is in control. Sometimes we have what's called a crisis of faith. We really wonder, God, are you really there? Have I just been believing in something that's imaginary? Or are you really there? Can I really completely and wholly trust in you? Well, beloved, I can tell you on the authority of God's word and by the experience of a multitude of hundreds of thousands, if not millions, God is faithful. And if you're going through a time, you're in the midst of a crisis of faith. Let me encourage you, God is faithful. Even in the worst of our situations, even in the greatest trials that we might have, our God is faithful, and we need to continue to look to Him. We need to continue to draw for Him. But what about non-believers? You know, non-believers who don't have that faith, don't have that foundation, particularly I'm thinking this morning of those who have heard the gospel message time and time and time and time and time and time again. They've heard it. Perhaps they grew up in the church. Perhaps they've been family members who are believers. Perhaps even they've joined a church and they've heard the gospel message, but they themselves have never come to that point of surrender. Surrender of their life, surrender to the truth and the understanding of what it means to commit their lives to Jesus Christ. For them, I look at them, they are, regardless of where they're at in life, 
They're in what I see as a crisis of non-faith. And we're going to be looking at, uh, again, this crisis of non-faith. They've heard the word multiple times, but yet they don't receive it and how that impacts their lives. You know, the writer of Hebrews tells us that without faith, it is really hard to please God. Is that what it says? What does it say, church? Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Impossible to please God. We're in the chapter 25 of the book of Acts as we've been going through Acts now for a while. Ever since Paul's arrest, he's had actually multiple opportunities to be able to share his testimony, both with the Jewish leaders as well as the Gentiles or the Roman soldiers that were there, the Roman officials. And the interesting thing is, is as we're winding down to the end of the book of Acts, this isn't the last time. He's got multiple times yet to go. As a matter of fact, over the next couple of chapters or so, we're going to see that he has another opportunity to share the truth of the resurrected Christ with King Herod Agrippa II, very powerful man in the area of Judea. During the first century time frame, most of the previous and even the current Roman leadership, particularly those that are high up in leadership, those that were governors, those that were kings over the area, they had at least an inkling of information in reference to the uh, beliefs of both the Jews as well as the Christians. After all, they're reigning and ruling over that area. As a matter of fact, Agrippa himself was well aware of both the Jewish scriptures as well as the Christian teachings that had been going on. And Agrippa, I find he becomes really a perfect lesson for us to see it's not how much you know, it's what you do with what you do know. You see, the unfortunate thing, there are many well-versed, educated, biblically knowledgeable people that even attend many of our churches, and yet they have never really taken that step of surrender to Jesus Christ. They could speak theology, they could probably teach theology and doctrine, but for them it's not real inside of them. Knowing the scriptures isn't enough. If it's not impacting your life for change, if it's not working in you that growth toward holiness before the Lord, then you're simply becoming head smart and spirit dry. Our current study, again, in the book of Acts, last week we finished chapter 24, we're moving into chapter 25, but I want you to back up to the last verse of chapter 24. Let's look at that last verse again. And last verse of chapter 24, verse 27, Luke writes for us, but after two years, Portius Festus succeeded Felix, and Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. Now we talked about that when all the issues came up that uh, led to Paul's arrest there on the Temple Mound. Felix had been the governor of the area of Jerusalem, the surrounding area. Luke tells us that he was one of those Roman leaders who actually had a more accurate knowledge of the way, a more accurate knowledge of the teachings of Christianity. He'd been the governor of the area for eight years. He was in the same position, actually, that had been previously held by a fellow by the name of Pilate. You remember Pilate during the Gospels, the time of the Gospels and the arrest and crucifixion of Christ. 
But for Felix here, he was a guy that was considered to be very cruel, very wicked, open to any kind of bribe you want to give him. Uh, that's just the kind of mindset that it was. Because of that, there was a lot of inner bickering. There was a lot of inner fighting going on within the ranks of the Romans at that point in time. Felix dealt with uh, every resistance that came to him with all kinds of cruelty. And actually, eventually, he was recalled by Rome to answer for some of these things. And that's why Portius Festus is now coming in to take his place. In chapter 24, we read where Paul had been brought to Felix there in Caesarea to a place called the Praetorium, a uh, huge uh, fortress, beautiful setting. A lot of the uh, Roman forces were there in Caesarea. It was a place that was built by Herod the Great, a beautiful facility. Paul is now there kind of in a house arrest, not really in prison. And as a matter of fact, while Felix was there, he would call for Paul often. Verse 26 of chapter 24 says, he would call for Paul often and conversed with him. And as I shared with you, I believe last week, the fact that he called him often, I don't think you could talk to a guy like the apostle Paul for very long without him speaking about Jesus. Somehow he's going to work that into the conversation. You can ask him about, hey, how is your condition? Well, let me tell you about Jesus. Hey, how's the food? Well, let me tell you about Jesus. I believe that Paul was that kind of a guy. But after a time frame of about two years there at the Praetorium, Paul still there under that protective custody, house arrest, whatever you want to call it. Uh, Felix being called back to Rome. Now Portius Festus comes in and we've got a new sheriff in town, okay? And that begins uh, chapter 25 for us. Chapter 25, verse one. Now when Festus had come to the province after three days, he went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Then the high priest and the chief men of the Jews informed him against Paul and they petitioned him, asking a favor against him that he would summon him to Jerusalem while they lay in ambush along the road to kill him. So we got the new governor in charge, the Jewish leadership. They decide they're going to try their hand once again to assassinate the apostle Paul. And so they asked Festus to summon Paul to come back up to Jerusalem to answer these charges that they have against him. And they had planned that they were going to be along the roadside. And as Paul and probably a small little group of Roman soldiers come, uh, these guys were going to ambush him. We got the same people, the same hatred, the same tricks that are going on that had happened about two years ago. But you know, that's not unlike the devil himself. It's the same hatred, it's the same tricks, it's the same schemes that he's had ever since the garden, ever since the creation of man. The enemy has the same tricks, the same situations and thoughts on how to trip you up, distract you, to destroy you, to slow you down, to disqualify you in any way that he can. And about the time that we think, oh good, we made it over that hump. Guess what? A couple of years later, boom, he's at us again, sometimes in the very same ways. But Festus wasn't going to fall for the trap of these Jews. Look at verse four. Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea. And that he himself was going there shortly. Therefore, he said, let those who have authority among you Jews go down with me and accuse this man to see if there is any fault in him. 
And I think more than protecting a poll, I think what Festus was probably doing here, he was kind of flexing his muscle as the governor. In other words, Rome's not going to dance to the music of the Jews. The Jews need to be under the authority of Rome. Just because you asked for it, we're not necessarily going to do that. So again, verse 6, when he, Festus, had remained among them more than 10 days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, he commanded Paul to be brought. And when he had come, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood about, and they laid many serious complaints against Paul, which they could not prove, while he, Paul, answered for himself. And he says, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I offended in anything at all. So apparently these Jews, once Festus had been up in Jerusalem, he headed back to Caesarea. They probably right behind his entourage as he went down to Caesarea because it says the very next day, uh, Festus again calls them, calls Paul to himself. The problem was is they came there and they didn't have any real charges that they could bring against the apostle Paul. Remember the ones that had the problem initially, they were the Jews from Asia that had seen Paul with Gentiles. They saw him in the temple, thought that he had had Gentiles with him in the temple. Now those guys apparently are long gone, gone back to the area of Macedonia or Ephesus or over in that area. So they had nothing that they could really speak about, nothing that they could prove. So this gives Paul this wide open window. He doesn't have to answer any charges because nothing that they were stating stuck in any way. Uh, So Uh, He just simply declares, you know what? I've not broken any kind of Jewish law. I've not broken any kind of temple law. I've not broken any Roman law. As a matter of fact, I haven't even said anything that could be construed as any kind of an offense against Rome or Caesar. Verse 9, Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, well, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? Now you look at this and you say, well, why in the world would you even do that? Why would you have him go up to Jerusalem if they couldn't bring the facts there? I'm wondering, even as it states there, he wanted to do the Jews a favor, if he's doing this with full understanding that it's probably not going to happen. Listen, I'll ask him if he wants to go up to Jerusalem, but uh, Festus probably understood Paul would be an absolute fool to go back up to Jerusalem. He, and Paul answered him, he said, you know, no, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews, I've done no wrong as you very well know. For if I am an offender and if I've committed anything deserving death, I don't object to dying. Now there's a guy with a lot of faith, a lot of just hope that, hey, you know, to be absent from this world, I'm going to be present with the Lord. So I'm not afraid of dying. But if there is nothing in these things of which these men accuse me, no one can deliver me to them. I appeal to Caesar. So we see what's going on here. For two years, Paul had been there being held against his will. The Jews still have this assassination plot. Remember the assassins that vowed that they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed the apostle Paul. Well, that was like two years ago. So these guys are really hungry by this time. And they they want Paul to come up. Now, actually, there is a deal in Jewish law that they could get out of that vow, but apparently they're still ready to do the deed. 
Again, Paul already been there, charged with a crime no one could prove, no one could even accurately verbalize. The Jews seem to have this really hard time of getting and keeping any bona fide witnesses against anything that they felt that Paul did. And there's no way that Paul was going to go back to Jerusalem unless he was forced to. However, as a Roman citizen, he had that ultimate option of appealing his case to Caesar. Now, the Caesar at this time, Augustus Caesar, a guy we also know as Nero. Now, this was in the earlier days of Nero's reign, and the severe persecution against the Christians at this point in time hadn't really started. The craziness of Nero had not really started at this point in time. Anyway, understand this. Paul felt that he had a better chance standing before Nero than going back to the Jews, And so that kind of tells you how crazy the Jews were at that point in time. Verse 12, then Festus, when he had concurred with the council, answered, you have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you shall go. But before Festus sent him off to Rome, a few days lapsed. And it was during that time that the new overall ruler, the king over there, there was the governor Festus, but now the king, Herod Agrippa II, he arrives in Caesarea along with Bernice, his sister. Verse 13, after some days, King Agrippa and Bernice came to Caesarea to greet Festus. When they had been there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king. So after let him settle in for a couple of days, Festus wanted to show Agrippa that he had pretty well completed due diligence in this whole thing with Paul, and so he had shared with him what took place over the last few days. Uh, the rest of verse 14, he said, there's a certain man left a prisoner by Felix, about whom the chief priests and the elders of the Jews informed me when I was in Jerusalem, and they were asking for a judgment against him. To them I answered, it's not the custom of the Romans to deliver any man to destruction. See, he knew they wanted to kill him. It's not the custom of the Romans to deliver any man to destruction before the accused meets the accusers face to face and has opportunity to answer for himself concerning the charge against him. Therefore, when they had come together, without any delay, the next day I sat on the judgment seat and commanded the man to be brought in. And when the accusers stood up, they brought no accusations against him of such things as I had supposed. Oh, they had some questions against him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who had died, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. And because I was uncertain of such questions, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there be judged concerning these matters. But when Paul appealed to be reserved for the decision of Augustus Caesar, I commanded him to be kept till I could send him to Caesar. Verse 22, then Agrippa said to Festus, I also would like to hear the man myself. And Festus responded, tomorrow you shall hear him. So the next day, when Agrippa and Bernice had come with great pomp and had entered the auditorium with commanders and the prominent men of the city, at Festus's command, Paul was brought in. Now, I need to give you a little background here on Agrippa and Bernice. This Agrippa was Agrippa II. He was the son of, guess what, Agrippa I. And uh, he was grandson, actually, of Herod the Great. Bernice 
was the daughter of this Agrippa I, and she too was the granddaughter of Herod the Great. Now history shows her as having three very short-lived marriages. At about the age of 13 or 14, and she was a very beautiful young woman, she grew into a very beautiful adult woman, but her first marriage at about 13 or 14 was to a man by the name of Marcus Julius Alexander. Well, Marcus Julius Alexander only lived for about two years, and then he died. And on the very day that he died, Bernice married, catch this, her father's brother, her uncle, uh, Herod Calcius. Well, he lived for like four years, and then he died. I'd be thinking, I don't necessarily want to uh, be married to Bernice at that point in time. (laughs) I wonder if she took out some really hefty life insurance policies there. (laughs) After her uncle-slash-husband died, she began living with her brother, Agrippa II. And historians tell us it was an incestuous relationship that they had. And also, during the time that she was with Agrippa, she actually married the third guy, uh, Polyman II. He was king of Cilicia. And she did that to kind of help cover her relationship with her brother. But she soon deserted him and moved back in with Agrippa. And again, historians of the day were very clear. They were outspoken about their relationship. But you need to understand, Bernice, in that situation, she also really enjoyed the fact that she could exercise pretty much the same or equal power as her brother-slash-husband exercised over the kingdom. And Agrippa II here, her brother-slash-husband, was actually the end of the Herodian dynasty. He never married, never had any children, and he died some 20 years after the fall of Jerusalem, so about A.D. uh, 90. And if you remember, A.D. 70 is the fall of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple by a commander of the Roman forces by the name of Titus. And historians also tell us that Bernice had this fling with Titus also. So quite the woman, yes. So when Luke tells us that Agrippa and Bernice came in with great pomp, and they entered the auditorium with the commanders and the prominent men of the city. Your imagination of what you consider great pomp is probably way too limited. They probably put it on to every extreme that they could. They loved their position. They loved people looking at them, adoring them, literally worshiping them. The word that Luke actually uses here that's translated in uh, our Bibles as great pomp is the Greek word fantasia, fantasia. So think about that for a moment. According to the Greek lexicon, the meaning of that word is a pompous ceremony, implying a, catch this, a cheap display of high status. And so here they come with all the commanders of the Roman forces there in that area, all the prominent men of the city of Caesarea. And now before you really get sick to your stomach about who they are and all this pomp and circumstance, all this regalia that's going on, you got to think for a moment here that in the midst of all of that, you got Festus, you got Agrippa, you got Bernice, you got all the Roman commanders, you've got the prominent men of the city. You've also got servants, you've also got other soldiers that are there in that area. And now, guess what? Paul gets to stand before them all 
and share his testimony. How cool is that? We're so glad you could be with us today as we opened God's Word and dove into the goodness and truth the Bible contains. If you've missed any part of today's message in Acts, we encourage you to refer to our website, calvarycg.org. Once there, you can browse our library of audio as well as learn more about the ministry of the Open Word. We'd love to hear from you about how God's working in your life. Please give us a call at 520-836-9676. When you call, please let us know how we can be praying for you. Again, that's 520-836-9676. If you prefer accessing information through social media, visit our Facebook page and keep up to date with all that's happening at The Open Word. Just go to theopenword.com. You'll be directed right to our page. You'll be able to explore more of Pastor David's audio there as well. As our time comes to a close today, Pastor David has a quick word of encouragement to share with you. Hey, thanks, Chris. Any time you spend in God's Word is valuable, and I'd like to encourage you to do it as often as possible. By diving deeper into the Scripture and letting it saturate your heart and mind, you'll be ready to take on your day as well as be prepared when the enemy attacks. If you're not sure where to start, you can begin by reading today's passage again. Or simply let your Bible fall open. If your heart is open to the Holy Spirit's direction, you can't go wrong. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. And I hope you'll join me again next time on The Open Word. Make a small-